Robert Adam. Some more exciting answers to the baffling and intriguing questions of science. Up and Adam, science on FBI. Dr. Alice Williamson is back, baby! <laughs> sure am. Good morning, Ruby. Good morning. How are you feeling? I am pretty good. You're, you're back, and I'm really happy you're back because I first wanted to ask you a really scientific question. Uh, I want to run a theory by you. I ran it by Tom first, um, and he wasn't oh entirely sure. Um, I've just been going around saying that it's <laughs> scientifically proven that Tuesdays are the hardest days of the week. Um, oh, okay. you're, a, you're a scientist. Do you think Tuesdays are the hardest day of the week? Well, you know, I just couldn't comment on something that doesn't have a control study, <laughs> that you haven't got a huge um, sample size, that you haven't done your meta-analysis. So you're going to have to do a bit more than, than okay. that. Maybe you should uh, you teach me how to knock up a... Uh, what, what would that be called? A maybe an experimental plan, mm. and then we can maybe move from there. All right. Okay. Well, maybe I'll do that, and next week I'll I'll run it by you, and then by the end of the year, probably Nobel Prize time. I reckon. I think so. I think I've really cracked something here. It's going to be a breakthrough. All right. Um, you've come in with a bang, obviously, because you've been away for two weeks. So you've brought in two stories. One of them is horrifying, um, because I feel like it's just it's it's so close to us. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is a bit. It is a bit horrifying. I mean, whenever you hear um, flesh eating, um, it, it's never good when it's a bacteria. Mm. <laughs> and this first story is about um, a type of ulcer, a Borrelia ulcer, that's um, becoming. Um, it's spreading really rapidly in Victoria, um, much more quickly than it has done in the past. Um, and in some places in Victoria, um, they're even calling it an epidemic. So it's uh, it's an ulcer that's caused by a, a bacterium, Microbacterium ulcerans, um, and the the number of cases over recent years have been growing quite quickly. So in 2016, there were 182 new cases, um, and this was 72% higher than um, than reported cases from the year before. And by November last year those cases had ridden, risen again by another 50%. So, Is um, it a new thing? Or? It's not a new thing, no. Um, so this article was written by Melissa Davey in The Guardian last month. Right. I brought it along because I thought it was an interesting thing to talk about. But it's not a new thing. It's been known in Victoria since 1948. Oh. Um, and it's not just... Um, present in Victoria. It's actually something that's quite common in, in swamplands and it's quite common in Africa. But the curious thing for Victoria is that, so it's been known about since 1948 here, is that it's, it seems to have a very particular locations where where it occurs. And it seems that you can't really spot things about the environment that you're entering that could kind of give you a clue as to whether that places you know endemic with this particular bacterium or not and it's also really curious that um there haven't been reported cases in new south wales or south australia or tasmania which you might have expected if you know a, a bacterium is you know taking over in certain areas you might have thought that it would have spread and so researchers have really they're really saying that they need some more funding to be able to understand a lot more about this particular uh, microbacterium and where it's like hanging out and how it's being spread. Yeah, is um like since it's been around since the 40s, has it spread 
like a lot lately is so, that what it yeah, is yeah that's the concern um there's been more reported cases so um the the in the, the hundreds sort of yeah thing. which is much higher than it had been you know in recent years the reported cases at least Ew. um and i think it, it starts off looking quite innocuous so it just feels a bit like an insect bite or looks like an insect bite but the um it spreads along the the fatty tissue and and eats your like eats the flesh and then it pops up back again as an ulcer so it's already done some of that that damage um and it takes quite a lot of work to get rid of it so um at the moment to get rid of it it's an eight-week course of antibiotics which you know anyone who's taken antibiotics you know that you don't usually take them for eight weeks so it's it needs quite a lot of treatment and there have in some severe cases even had to be some amputations or removal of skin so it's something that people are you know quite worried about and looking into (laughs) Um, but the good news is that we have some experts here in australia so there's um there's a couple of people well particularly professor paul johnson who's uh, the international expert on this who's been working on on this particular form of bacterium since the early 90s um so i think it's an appeal for you know some more funding to look into this so they can understand where it's living in the natural environment so where it's hanging around and how it's being transmitted yeah and there are a few theories about right. that yeah that's what so, i was gonna ask <laughs> yeah, sorry ruby no, great, yeah great. so and one of the theories is that it's being spread by mosquitoes mm-hmm. the other one is possums and that it's um, it's been spotted in possum poo so um, it could be being spread by possums either by contact with possums or contact with possum poo um, also mosquitoes some of them have been found to be carrying this bacteria but a relatively small number out of the mo- mosquitoes in an area that were captured were, ca- were carrying this so whereas we, we know with other um, pathogens like malaria or Ross River or things like that mosquitoes certainly are the main vector it's not that clear in this case. So um, we need to do more research to understand exactly how this is being transmitted and where it's hanging around in the environment. Um, And I think that there will be a move to do this because of the way that the the cases have been, have have raised quite considerably over Mm. the last few years. Wash your hands, people. Well, I was going to say, is it contagious or is it just something that you uh, contract? So I'm not too sure about that. Um, the advice from the, the medical experts for people who live in some of the regions that are affected are to take some of the precautions that you do in mosquito um, uh, ridden areas anyway. So your dengue fever yeah, sort so, of. Yeah, so to just to prevent being bitten, mm. to wear long sleeve clothes, you know, to avoid times where the mosquitoes are out. I imagine it's also probably a good idea to not contact, uh, not be in contact, not contact possums. I think no <laughs> one's calling up the possums, but you know, not be in contact with them. And also, they've also advised that you cover any cuts or wounds and really keep an eye on them. So get to the GP if you have a suspect wound that's not healing and maybe remind the doctor about Borreliosa in case you're worried about it. Right. And you said before that uh, it can be treated with antibiotics. Is that right? Um, I don't know what my question was. It was something about antibiotics. Well, the good... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you go for it. No, I was just going to say, well, yeah, it is antibiotics. And, and um, you know, the hunt for antibiotics is something that that we really need to take quite seriously. As I mentioned before, this takes an eight-week treatment course for antibiotics. So... This is, you know, tying into some of the stories that we hear in the media all the time about antibiotic resistance growing. Um, And so scientists are looking for new ways to find these medicines. And that's what we're going to talk about 
in the next story. Oh, so smooth. I feel like Tuesdays, that's my one theory, is that my brain is just somewhere else on Tuesdays. So thank you so much, Alice, for uh, wrapping that up in a neat little package. We were talking about antibiotics and the need for them. We know that there's resistance. We know there's some, you know, really very real uh, threats and worries and concerns about the state of the antibiotic medicines that we have available. And some some studies, a recent one has predicted that if we don't do something quite radical in terms of our medicines by 2050, there are going to be more cases of of people dying by from infection than there would be from cancer. And this is, you know, fairly dramatic when we consider that um, you know, medicines such as penicillin, which has a very strong Australian story, have really revolutionised the way that we all live and the fact that infections haven't haven't been as dangerous for all of us for a long time because of the development of antibiotics. So one of the big problems is that people are becoming resistant to the medicines that we have. Yeah. And this is in part because bacteria are really clever. They've had, you know, so many millions of years to evolve and to to, to understand how to, to survive. Partly due, due to people misusing antibiotics, so maybe taking them when they're not needed or not finishing a course. But what is clear is that as well as having different ways that we prescribe medicines and the way that we take them might need to change, is that we need new medicines. And that's a really tricky thing to find. So people who are in the business of finding new medicines um, know how hard it is. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. Is it something that you kind of put a lot of targeted sort of research in or is it something that you more often kind of stumble upon? It's So um, it's certainly a lot of targeted research, even though some of those discoveries might be stumbled upon. They might be serendipitous because like of penicillin. the... penicillin, yeah. Well, that was, you know, certainly a serendipitous discovery. Um, an English guy, Alexander Fleming, went on holiday and left some dirty Petri dishes in his lab and then came back and found that a mould had grown that was secreting something that was killing bacteria. So that was a pretty good result to come back to. But scientists work really, really hard to find new medicines. And uh, one of the ways that they might look at finding a new antibacterial is either to take a an existing antibacterial medicine and to look at its chemical structure and then tweak some things about it to try and make it better, which is one way to find a new medicine. Problem is that maybe the bacteria, if it's similar to another medicine, could find a way you know, to kind of get around that medicine. So mm. that's that's one problem, but they but it is a good solution. The other thing is to go out looking for antimicrobials. So, you know, whereas Fleming found that in the in the, the mold that was being secreted or the things being secreted from the mold in his lab. The other thing is that you can go and find antimicrobials out in the environment, out in the world. So sometimes there's some research which we might talk about at some point people going to particularly filthy places to look for antimicrobials because where there's bacteria there will be natural resistance building up like tips and stuff tips and toilets and things like that but right. we might come back to that this particular story is about something called bioprospecting and this is looking out into the natural environment for naturally occurring antimicrobials so possible medicines that come from nature Cool. And this isn't a new idea at all. Um, in fact, I think 60% of the medicines that we take come from what are called natural products. So they come from things that were found in nature. So there's a very rich source of medicines. And people might be aware that lots of this has been done in the past in rainforests. Right. People, you know, found so many different species of animals and plants and so many, you know, thousands more of bacteria or 
um, antimicrobials or enzymes or DNA, things that could be interesting for, for, for medical applications. I just imagine people in little, uh, in scientist lab coats just swabbing frogs' backs and stuff like that. Well, you know, as the campaign said when I, when I was at school, not all um, scientists have to wear white coats. So <laughs> They're some... just walking around with wellies on. like. But, but they do take samples from frogs. You know, yeah. we've talked before about um, different medicines that are good at treating, we found medicines that have come from toxins that that can be really good for things like stroke or heart attack or yeah. things like that. But this particular story in the Atlantic talks about a different type of bioprospecting and maybe one that people aren't as familiar with. And this is about a group of scientists, mainly Norwegian or Norwegian-based, who have been um, travelling around the Arctic seas in a, a navy, well, a, a, a fishing boat that's become a research vessel. And they are bioprospecting, but they're gathering organisms from the mud that's scraped from the bottom of the ocean. So they're picking up um, wheelbarrow equivalents full of mud every few hours, um, thanks to scuba divers and sophisticated equipment. Oh, that sounds cold. Yeah, pretty, pretty. I think that'll be the one of the. That's that's definitely one of the jobs that uh, would would be a bit too nippy for me. I think. Mm. And then when this mud comes back up, they're pulling out things that live in the mugs, mud, so starfish or sea squirts or sponges, um, marine sponges that are present in in this muddy water. They're also clambering onto ice when they meet, you know, icy um, kind of pieces of land or well, frozen pieces of land or ice and scraping off um, bark that's found on the surface of some of these islands or off the archipelago of Norway and gathering fungi, moss, um, looking to see if there are any organisms or anything that's produced by some of these sea creatures as what's called secondary metabolites that could be interesting either antimicrobials or um, possible uh, medically active compounds that could be treated for could be used to treat different diseases is it something about the fact that it's in such a extreme uh place yeah so there, there's some of the thoughts about this and, and i think this is probably still yet to be completely proven but mm. one of the ideas is that it's pretty cold up there so these creatures that have survived and not just the creatures but the bacteria and all sorts of things that live around these environments in it and in this mud and around these environments they've survived some pretty cold temperatures so there's something hardy about them and that gives people hope that they could be pretty hardy and pretty robust when used to treat different infections now this is one of those jobs where there's a lot of funding being put into this there's a lot of scientists on this boat working together um, to try and do this and they're working really intensely but they also have to go through um, thousands of different organisms um, lots of different species that they find and uh, painstakingly look and see if they can find anything that will kill different bacteria or um, different kinds of um, uh, pathogens so there's a lot of work to do to find, as the researchers themselves described, this needle in the haystack. Mm. But hopefully all of this work trying to find something that's really potent might pay off. Could they also could it also go the other way and they might be able to uncover another flesh eating bacteria down well, there? <laughs> well, you know, I mean that's true, but you know, sometimes when you're looking for um something to treat something, it's actually 
quite common to find them in the in the same place that there's an infection because nature develops a way to combat infection so actually sometimes looking at or understanding the structure of something that is pathogen is the pathogen is causing the problem Mm. that can be the key in unlocking the secret of the structure that yeah exactly (laughs) the structure that you need to find or that you need to develop to combat that particular disease so i think it's really interesting to hear what's going on here it's also as you mentioned it's it's um, it's deeply um evocative this article it mm. does feel like a wes anderson uh film in the making that these scientists are out there you know in the dark and um, because it gets dark very early up there trying to go on the the most northerly arctic sea missions digging up to, wheelbarrows and mud yeah, exactly to find out if there are any secrets that are being hidden in the the cold and deep waters another of the arctic. movie that it reminds me of is um is it The Thing, the oh. 80s horror movie, where they find bacteria in ice and then it makes them become, like, horrible alien monster creatures? No? Okay, no, that's anyway. Not, that's not doing it for me. I was just thinking, I was, like, keeping up with this horror theme. Like, it's sounding a lot like, yeah, go watch it. It's awful. Don't don't actually watch it. It's really scary. But uh, thank you so much, Dr. Alice Williamson, for coming in. Yeah, it's lovely and, to be back. Uh, it's lovely for me to just be sitting here constantly derailing your (laughs) science stories. Wow, it's an honour to be here too. All right, I will see you next week, Alice. See you next week.